You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Welcome, everyone. Good evening. Uh, as has been mentioned, my name is Ronald. I'm a, I'm a pastor here at Grace Church, and I've been given the privilege to uh, bring the word, to preach the word tonight. And so my prayer is, is that it would be uh, as much, if not a greater blessing to you as it has been to me in studying it. So with that said, uh, we're jumping into our text tonight, which is Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. And uh, I was reminded recently of how expensive wedding invitations can be. And no, I, I didn't say weddings. Of course, weddings can be expensive, right? But wedding invitations, even in and of themselves, can be expensive. Uh, my cousin, who is getting married, she was in town recently, and she was going through about uh, 5,000 different options of wedding invitations, the font, the color, foil, not foil, what you know, picture to pick. And uh, looking into it, just for about 100 of the uh, 3 by 5 kind of, you know, every day, the peasant option, uh, uh, wedding invitation, it's about five to $600 just to print them. And uh, if you're looking for the premium option, right, the embossed letter print, graving, the cardstock, all those different things, it could run you up to $2,000, actually, for 100 of those invitations. And so... At some point, you're probably thinking like I'm thinking, right? I'll just text them. They'll, they'll get the point, right? You, no, no need to like mail it out. But there's, there's something beautiful about receiving an invitation in the mail, right? Kind of harkens back to a bygone era where formalities and proprieties were observed. And as has been mentioned, right, we got two members uh, who are getting married today, who got married today, Danny and Victoria. And a few months ago, we received their uh, invitation in the mail. And it was sweet, it was, it was beautiful, it conveyed well their love and care for us and even just their desire for us to be there with them, to, to celebrate, right? To celebrate and, and see the beautiful union of, of husband and wife come together in marriage, right? These kinds of invitations are important because they're, they're intimate, they convey a sense of fellowship, convey a sense of relationship. And the reason we're reflecting on this just for a moment even is because we're going to actually be looking tonight at God's very own invitation for us. We're going to be looking at how God invites us to come, listen, and live. To come, listen, and live. So we'll dive further into those, but just as a point of kind of clarification, we'll be, uh, we'll be running through big chunks of the book of Isaiah for context. We've been in the book of Matthew for months, I would say year plus now, I guess. It's been a while. Uh, and so jumping into the book of Isaiah, it's only appropriate and right that we give some context to better understand what it is is going on. And as, as good students of the word, right, this isn't like a magic spell book, like I'm just going to imprint and pose my own thoughts and ideas about, about what these words mean. We want to understand authorial intent, uh, what the author was writing, to who to whom, uh, to the audience, what, what the audience would have understood and felt and been experiencing at that time so that we can better understand what the word intends for us to apply, 
what the Word intends for us to learn and take in and receive. Uh, We want to honor God's Word that way. And so we'll be understanding, studying the context real briefly. And the other reason I'm doing that too is because actually in the fall, as has been mentioned in our community groups, we'll be doing the book of Isaiah. And so uh, I figured we'd whet our appetites a little bit with, uh, with some clarifying information on, on what's going on in the book of Isaiah. So buckle up. We're going to be going through big chunks of, uh, of context in Isaiah until we get to our passage for today, which is again, Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. So Isaiah begins uh, uh, the book with several indictments on Israel. Indictments are basically charges, accusations on how they have failed to live up to their covenant promises, their, their end of the, of the covenant, as it were. And you might be asking, okay, so what's a covenant? Covenant, we just sang a ton of songs about those. It sounds kind of old. I think I saw that once in an Indiana Jones movie once, right? The Ark of the Covenant. No, that, that's, that's not what we're talking about. It's, it's actually a covenant is a theological word for, uh, it, it conveys the idea of a promise and a contract kind of rolled into one. It's a deep, deep promise. And because Israel was not living out their end of the covenant with the Lord, the Lord was ordaining the destruction of their cities in order to rouse them, wake them up, call them back home for their good. He was calling them to life rather than death. And so in light of that, God raises up the prophet Isaiah. He's a spokesman for the Lord, and he's commissioned by God to preach the truth to the Israelites and to try and set them straight. Again, wake them up, turn them back. However, many didn't listen, right? We're working through the book of Isaiah. He's preaching and people aren't listening. And we see a long list of Judah's kings and how they failed to, to turn to God. They thought they could do it better than God. And this eventually ended up in a disaster for God's people. These circumstances led to several invasions eventually by the Assyrian Empire. They conquered Judah. And now keep in mind that the Assyrians were not a kind people. If you have an empire, it tends to kind of feel like you're not necessarily one of the good guys, right? It's the Syrian empire. They terrorized foreign populations, even after subjugating them, right? So they'd, they'd conquer them, and then they'd continue to, to, to demand exorbitant tributes from them. They'd conscript the men into the armies. And then not only that, they would exile entire people groups out to the furthest corners of their nation, of their empire. And so they'd, they'd do this in order to destroy a sense of culture, of cohesion, of individual identity. They'd try and assimilate them into Assyrian culture. And this was happening to the Israelites. The idea being is that you can't really rebel against us if you're not really together with your people. And so they'd, they'd kind of do that to try and, and, uh, and, and, and weaken Israel even further. And so by about uh, chapter 37, we get to King Hezekiah. And this is a, a king who for a season did trust the Lord. And the Lord blessed them and, and they helped them overthrow the Assyrian Empire. But it was a short-lived victory because Israel had not really truly repented. Actually, uh, the uh, Babylonian Empire arose and then conquered Israel again. So not only the Assyrians, now the Babylonians came. And the Israelites were eventually carried off into what's called Babylonian exile. And this is a huge part of the backdrop of the Old Testament, the Babylonian exile. Now, if you thought the Assyrians were were pretty bad and brutal, they were JV compared to the Babylonians. Because the Babylonians took what the Assyrians started, their procedures and processes for subjugating peoples, and they perfected them. They're the ones who who beat, killed, and sold off the Israelites into, into slavery. They separated them from families, from friends, from livelihoods, and anything familiar. 
Imagine being taken from your homes in this manner, never seeing your hometown, your family, being treated like a dirt, like dirt, less than human. This was an existential threat for Israel, right? It, it wasn't just like, oh, this is like a bad day, it's a tough day. I mean, the Lord had promised that he would keep them as a nation, and before their very eyes, they were seeing their nation torn apart. They were being sent out and exiled away from their homes. And so they, very, they thought that their very existence hang, hung in the balance. This was Israel's reality when Isaiah prophesied. God's people were despairing. They were looking for hope, and, and this is precisely what Isaiah was trying to give them. But this was, again, not just a day or two or weeks or months. This was decades, decades of, of exile that Israelites were suffering. And maybe some of you today can identify with Israel. Maybe not in the, in the length of the suffering, maybe not decades, but certainly in the depths of the suffering, right? Feeling like you've tried everything but still feel empty, still feel hopeless, like you're in a long season of drought. That's where Israel was. And we'll see today how the Lord responds to their neediness and subsequently how he responds to our neediness, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. How he responded then is how he responds now. So by chapter 40, we see a change in tone. So we've been going through several indictments. We're talking about the Assyrian invasion, then the Babylonian invasion. But now we get to see uh, the, the tender-hearted nature of God just coming out recognizing God's basically saying through Isaiah, listen, I know you've been unfaithful, but I will be faithful. I know you've abandoned me, but I will not abandon you. You will not cease to exist. It looks like you're not going to cease to exist, but I will keep you. And so we, we finally arrive at Isaiah 55. Brief kind of quick running through the context, but we finally arrive at Isaiah 55. And this is essentially uh, just a crescendo moment. The Lord has shared all these things. He's poured out his heart. And then the Lord is calling his people back with this invitation to life. So let's read, if you would, with me. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So again, we, we have three lessons to take away from the text today. We are to come, we are to listen, and we are to live. Come, listen, and live. And we'll dive into each of those now. So the first one is come, and we see that directly in, in verse one. We are to come and be satisfied in God. Come and be satisfied in God. It's, it's a simple command, but also difficult to respond to, right? To actually obey at times. And I mean, look at the emphasis here. It's not just said once. It's said even just in the first verse four times. It's repeated four times. Because the reality is, is that Israel, and God knew this, Israel was not coming. And God was essentially saying to them, just come as you are. 
Despite all their pain and suffering, Israel was still struggling to find their own solution, to fix their own problems, to do everything they could so that they didn't have to repent and turn to the Lord. But it all starts with coming as you are and recognizing that there is nothing of merit that you can bring, just yourself. And we see that, we see that even in, in, in just how he describes the people in verse 1. In verse 1, he says they are basically thirsty, poor, and hungry. This is a state of total destitution. Without the means to provide for themselves even the basic necessities of life, it was not pretty what, what kind of state they were in. And yet he bid them come. Let me just clear this up from the beginning too. This, these, these verses use powerful imagery about hunger and thirst uh, and, and food, just beautiful imagery. But, but the reality being described here is not a physical one. It is a spiritual one. This is a picture of what life looks like when we try to work out all our problems in a vacuum, apart from the deep well of God's love and wisdom. We see he's, uh, when, when we see him refer to uh, coming to the waters, we sang some beautiful songs. Chris, man, you, you've nailed it, dude. That was beautiful, the ones uh, that we just sung about God being our well. It should remind us of, of John 4, and if you're not familiar, that's that's when Jesus met with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. And, uh, and so they started having this conversation about water, or so it seemed about water. And Jesus eventually tells her, says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you're feeling dry, parched, thirsty for water, come and ask the Lord and he will give you living water the kind that does not run out, and the kind that actually satisfies, unlike the other wells this world has to offer. And the Lord doesn't just have something for those who are thirsty. He has something for every dimension of our needs, even as we think about hungry, thirsty, and poor. For those who thirst, come to the waters. He is the living waters, Jesus is. For those who are poor, come to God who richly provides us with all good things, 1 Timothy 6, 7. Those who are hungry, he will clothe and feed. The nature of the Lord when he sees us tired, weary, poor, and broken is to have mercy on us. I mean, it's summed up beautifully in Psalm 72, verses 12 through 13. He says, for he delivers, rather the psalmist says, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. When we are thirsty, hungry, and needy, the Lord does not stand at the door kind of looking at us with arms crossed being like, clean yourself up, man. Clean yourself up before you can come in. That's, that's not what he's saying. He receives us with open arms, delighting in us as we delight in him. Even as we just sung, he just bids us come. Does not matter if you are thirsty, poor, or hungry. Does not matter the state of your being. Just come as you are. So we see this, this invitation, and you might be saying, okay, I get it, fine, okay, I, you gotta come. But what's this gonna cost me, right? Usually as we think about invitations, saying yes to an invitation usually requires some kind of cost, right? My cousin who I mentioned earlier is, uh, is getting married. She's, uh, she's actually not getting married in the US, she's getting married in Mexico. And so it's gonna be a destination wedding. Ooh, ah, you know. It's nice. Uh, when I got the invitation, I was super excited. I love my cousin. I, I really, I'm super excited to, to celebrate her and have that time. But my second thought was, how much is this going to cost, right? 
because I, I got, if you don't know, I got three kids, and I think they're in the wet, they are in the wedding, and it's like, oh, like, I can't just go and represent, it's got to be all of us. So I started, like, Googling, like, how much is this going to cost? Because the nature of an invitation is, it, it's, a, it's a bridge to commitment, right? When you say yes, when I give my yes to the RSVP, I'm saying, I'm going to be there, I'm going to bring a gift, and I'm going to celebrate you and what the Lord's doing in you, like, yes, I'm super excited, that's my yes. And that's the commitment that I'm bringing. And the person who gave the invitation is saying, okay, great. Your yes means that I will prepare a plate for you. There's going to be food. There's going to be festivities at this time and place. Right? Both parties are kind of changing their plans according to the yes to the invitation, according to the reality that someone's coming. But look at the, at the Lord's invitation. His invitation in verse 1 is to come and eat, but at no expense to those invited. They need merely come, bring themselves. Notice it says that those without money come, buy, and eat. Is that, a, is that supposed to be a cruel joke? Like, hey, I, I know you're hungry. I know you don't have any money. Just go to the grocery store. Get yourself something to eat, man. Like, you know, pick yourself up. Is he, is he mocking? No, he, he's not mocking. He's, he's actually wooing us. He's drawing us into himself with this free invitation to eat. When someone invites you to their home for dinner and they don't make you pay a cover charge, it's not because the food was free, right? It's because they paid for it and they want to serve you and love you as an extension of relationship and service. I want to, I want to honor you with this. I want to love you with this food and serve you in this, in this way. So again, the Lord is calling us to eat his food to his pantry. Open it up, take what you want. It's his food, but again, not because it's free, it's free to us, but it came at great expense to him, as we'll talk about in, later in the sermon, but it has already been kind of addressed with John 7. It came at great expense through his son, Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. A small note about the nature of the food. Notice that it's not just a, a cup of water and some stale bread, right? Come by and eat wine and milk. It's not just a few soda crackers and some ketchup packets, right? It says wine and milk. Wine and milk at that time were symbols of abundance, symbols of luxury. We'd say today maybe like, come by and eat Natalie's, you know, organic orange juice or Horizon organic grass-fed whole non-GMO, I don't know what. You know, it, it meant to convey this idea that not only would your needs be met, but over and abundantly met over and abundantly met. You were really going to be taken care of if you would only come, buy, and eat. You're not going to be hungry. You're not going to need to go to a McDonald's and fill up again after eating this food. You would be satisfied. God is not just giving us what we need to survive, but an abundance above and beyond what we need in order to show the greatness of his love for his people. And so that's our first point, simple to come and be satisfied in him. Come and be satisfied in him and what he provides. So to everyone feeling a sense of yearning, yearning for hope, for purpose, for renewal, as Israel did at that time, the Lord invites us to come and eat from his table, to stop slopping around in the scraps that this world has to offer, and instead to feast at the table of the king as a son and a daughter, not even as a guest, as a son and a daughter. So, we've established that the Lord's invitation is to come, okay? But of course, he knows his people's heart. 
He knows the kind of heart of man. And he knows that some would just come and they'd be like, hey, do I, do I get a participation trophy? I'm, you know, I, I've arrived, like I've, I've come, I've done what you've asked me to. Is that it? No. He adds here in verse two, he says, uh, listen, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Eat what is good. To those of you who have kids, you know what it is to tell them come with some kind of urgency, right? Come now, I need you, or, or we need to go, or whatever it is. And for them to not respond accordingly, right? You say come, and maybe they didn't hear, or maybe they decided, maybe they didn't hear, or maybe they, they decided to do something else, right? And in your best moments, hopefully, you kind of, you don't go crazy, right? You don't snap, you, you kind of go to them, you take a knee, and you start asking them some insightful questions like, hey, what, what's going on here? Like, I needed you to come. This was urgent. I asked you to come. What made you think that, that following your desires was more important than, than being obedient to mom and dad now because we needed you to, to do this? And you kind of talk them through that and, and help them learn what it means to obey and understand and study their heart, all those different aspects. This is what the Lord is doing here. He's, he's taking this, this kind of uh, figurative knee and he's loving his people by asking them some insightful questions here in verse two. Look at verse two again. It says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? So we see kind of a cool point revealed from, from, that we didn't know in verse one, right? It's not that Israel didn't have any money. It's not that Israel didn't have any, any health and vigor and strength to work and do their labor. It's not that they didn't have resources, it's that they were misallocating those resources. They were not putting them where they needed to be. They were, they were investing them, sure enough, but they weren't getting the returns they desired because they were investing them in all the wrong places. And isn't that how, how we feel, right? As Americans, constantly running and moving, doing a lot of things, but accomplishing little. Checking off a lot of boxes, but still feeling like there's always something else. What else? What else? What else do I need to do? What else is going on? What else do I need to cover? What little money and strength we have is wasted on the things that do not satisfy. We spend so much money and time on things we think we need versus what we actually need. We use what limited strength, energy, and money given us by the Lord to obtain things that don't satisfy. But the challenge by God is to eat what is good. Listen and eat what is good to delight ourselves in rich food rather than food that does not satisfy. Cubans have a, a great word for food that does not satisfy. Maybe some of you already know. Uh, it's called chucheria. You can say it with me, it's fun. Say chucheria. 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 So chucheria, chucheria is basically food that has little to no nutritional value, but is so delicious that you just fill your belly with it, right? We're thinking of, of uh, you know, people who spoil their dinner, they're snacking in between meals, you know, and, and so because they eat all the bread and, and pastries and pastelitos and granola bars and cookies, they're not ready for food, for real food, for true food. They're anemic in their nutritional intake of real food, or in Spanish, comida caliente, like hot food, heavy food, satisfying food. And so you can just imagine the Cuban mom and the grandmother in the background just knowing you're in the pantry grabbing cookies or pastelitos or whatever it is, and they're screaming, no come chucheria, like don't eat that. Don't eat that food, you will spoil your dinner. There's something better on the way. 
There's something more satisfying, more fulfilling than that garbage you're eating right now. But what do we do? We spend our money and our time and our energy on things which are not bread, as it says in verse 2 on things that don't actually satisfy, on the things that are not necessary. And the Bible says, fool, eat what is good. And God's not doing this to be mean or controlling any more than the mom or grandmother is. God, God's calling us to this because there is something better for us than the chucheria, than the, the snacks that this world has to offer. And yet, we like the chucheria, right? We like the snacks, the quick pick-me-ups that give us an, an instant sense or, or an instant feeling of gratification. When life gets difficult or seems overwhelming, we turn to the chucheria to, to kind of mask away the pain, to take our woes away, to medicate our woes away. We medicate. We try to numb the disappointment and the pain of life instead of finding actual satisfaction, actual peace, just like Israel did. They were not eating bread. They were spending their time, money, and treasures or time, talents, and treasures on things which are not bread. 2 Peter 3.14 tells us to be diligent to be at peace because the Lord is coming again. Connotes this idea of you've got to work at it, you're building at it, you're investing in that idea of being at peace. And the question is, is are we seeking peace or are we seeking distraction? Are we seeking peace or are we merely seeking the removal of pain? Because those are two very different things. If you're sick, no, no, one, no one goes to the anesthesiologist first, right? You go to the, the doctor. I, I tried figuring out how to say that best, but I know an anesthesi anesthesiologist is a doctor, but you know what I mean, the, the, the main physician. You go to the main doctor to figure out what's wrong, to diagnose the problem. Why am I sick? The morphine helps to remove the pain, right? But it does not actually remove the pain. It does not deal with the root cause. And we've become a society that loves to distract and loves to self-medicate, loves to mask the pain away, mask the problems. Again, not to deal with the problem, but merely to treat the symptoms. And so, for example, if you're anxious, have a glass of wine, have a beer, maybe two, maybe three. You're stressed, watch some Netflix, or maybe a whole day's worth of Netflix. You're sad, go out to a restaurant, buy yourself something. You're lonely, get on social media, spend a few hours there, that'll make you feel more connected. Again, I'm not saying any of those things are inherently sinful or wrong or bad, that's not what the scriptures are saying, but we, but we fool ourselves just like Israel did when we spend our time, our talents, and our treasures for things that will not ultimately satisfy, thinking they will, because they won't. It's not enough to just come to the Lord, although that's a, a necessary first step before you can listen. We need to also listen diligently. In the original language, it's saying, listen listeningly. Basically saying, super seriously listen right now and eat what is good. Eat what is good. The scriptures are very aware of the human heart. God knows just how our heart works better than anyone else, and he knows how our hearts are prone to delight in some of the dumbest, most silliest, most paltry things. All of us. Especially now more than ever. I mean, there's a thousand and one different ways to medicate our lives, right? To be amused rather than satisfied. And to be entertained rather than fulfilled. That's the curse of our age. And the question is, is are we eating what is good 
Are we eating the blessings of God and, and recognizing that we are able to be called sons and daughters of the Most High King? Or are we satisfied with the chucheria that this world has to offer, with the fleeting things that promise much but underdeliver? Overpromise, underdeliver. Always. Moving to our last point, looking at verse 3, we, we see that the Lord invites us to come and be satisfied in him. He invites us to listen and eat what is good, eat rich food. And finally, now we see that he invites us to live and receive him. To live and receive him. Reading verse 3 again, it says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. There's a state of being where the soul is dead, anemic, decrepit, withered. It's without hope. Days seem gray. People seem annoying or obnoxious at best or our enemies seeking to destroy us at worst. The days feel like they're dissatisfying without purpose or joy. The soul begins to wither and die without hope like a starving body, like a body that's never actually received nutritional food, food that satisfies and this can be true, by the way, for, for the non-Christian or the Christian who's lost sight of the goodness of God in Christ Jesus, lost sight of the promises of God. Let me ask you a question that's been simmering under the whole time we've been studying this text. What is the thing that will make your soul live? And I mean to ask that pastorally, not kind of Sunday school answer, but, but what is the thing that will make your soul live? The thing that, that you honestly, in your heart of hearts, in your mind, you think will make your life good if you have it or destroy your life if you don't have it. The thing that, that competes with the affections of your heart, as Jonathan Edwards would say, that vie for the affections of your heart, that fight God for the claim to be king of your heart. If you imagine kind of a little throne sitting on, it's kind of cheesy, but it's true, a little throne on top of your heart. And the reality is, is that that is the Lord's throne, it's his rightful place, and yet we can put little gods to replace him, to usurp his authority and sovereignty, whether it be money, sex, comfort, health, whatever it might be. What is that thing that you put above the sovereignty or the, the, the authority of God in your life? If, if something doesn't immediately pop into your head, have some, some good diagnostic, what I think to be good diagnostic questions borrowed from, uh, from a Tim Keller's Galatians study, basically diagnostic questions for understanding our idolatry. I'm going to read through them really briefly and then continue, but, but these are really helpful. I, I, I commend you to uh, take a picture or just write them down and throughout the week, meditate on it, chew on these, answer them, share them with a friend, a loved one, a spouse, and, and really dig into what's going on in your heart. The scriptures call us to be students of our heart, to examine our hearts, right? And so these questions are insightful for that purpose. Number one, what is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about most? What, if I failed or lost it, would cause me to feel that I did not even want to live? What do I rely on or comfort myself with when things go bad or get difficult? What do I think most easily about? What does my mind go to when I am free? What, what preoccupies me? 
What unanswered prayer would make me seriously think about turning away from God? What makes me feel the most self-worth? What am I proudest of? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make me happy? Seven questions trying to figure out what competes with God for the affections of our heart, for the desires of our heart. And again, it's, it's not to say, as you're kind of reading these questions, oh, that's kind of harsh, that's kind of, that's kind of heavy-handed. It's not to say that all fear is bad fear necessarily, or even that all comforts are bad comforts, or expecting anything good out of life is bad. That's not what the scriptures are saying. That's not what I'm saying. But again, when we make these normal, good desires, ultimate desires, we've usurped the rule of God in our hearts. And down that road leads sin, despair, and heartache. But if you come and listen, God himself will make an everlasting covenant, a promise. The steadfast, sure love of David will be yours. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? For the non-Christian, the, the Lord desires to make an everlasting covenant with you. Simple as that. This is an open invite. As was spoken before, we as a people, humanity 101, we're all born into the world, thirsty, hungry, and poor. Spiritually seeking to, to find food and water in all the wrong places, in places we can never pay for or afford, and receiving food that will never actually abate our thirst, that will act, never actually satisfy us, never give us that soul satisfaction that we were created for in God through Christ Jesus. But God offers us food and drink that will satisfy, and then a promise to love us as his very own children if we would only Come and receive them. This invitation is open to you, even now. And if this is you, please come find me or another member at Grace Church. We'd love to have a conversation with you, kind of further explain what this invitation means in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. That would be our joy. Please don't leave if that's you. Before asking someone that is. You can leave eventually. <laughs> Just joking. So, but for the Christian then, Remember the steadfast, sure love of God given to you in Christ Jesus. Let the measure of God's love for you be determined by the cross and his covenant with you and not your circumstances. Some of you read this passage. Oh, okay, like he will make an everlasting covenant with me, my steadfast, sure love of David, everlasting. It's always gonna be there. And you look at the circumstances of your life. You look around and you say, well, my dad's pretty sick. That, that doesn't feel very loving well, I'm about to lose my job. That doesn't feel very loving. Well, I, I can't afford to pay the bills. That doesn't feel very loving. And then you kind of get into a position, naturally, normally, where you would ask, Lord, do you love me? Because my circumstances around me feel very unloving at different points. And the scriptures are calling us to think beyond our circumstances and think to the everlasting promises of the Lord. When when the Christian gets to that point, and we've all been there at different points, we need to measure God's love for us, not by our circumstances, but by the cross. How much does God love you? He sent his son, his perfect son, to die on the cross for you and for me, so that by believing in him, we might receive grace through faith and be welcomed into the family of God as sons and daughters, not as guests, not as slaves, as sons and daughters. That is the kind of love the Lord has for you and for me. 
And by the way, we can at times as Christians think that the Lord promises things that he doesn't. That's another kind of pratfall. The Lord, by the way, promises that in this world we will have trouble. The consolation, but take heart, he has overcome the world, is what Jesus says. We have received an everlasting covenant, which means there is nothing, no circumstance, no person that can separate you and I from the steadfast, sure love of David. Cling to this reality and live. Near the end of the book of Isaiah, we see these words. Isaiah 65, one through two. The Lord says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. The heavenly Father awaits our return. With open arms waiting to love and receive his children, Yet even in light of this reality, we often run into the arms of other lovers that will never treat us with the same love, care, mercy, and wisdom that God himself offers. We run into abusive relationships with money, sex, work, comfort, food, health, family, security, whatever else you want to fit in in there, thinking they will be better masters. If I serve this, he promises eternal life. If I get the big enough house, if I make enough money, I can secure my life. These are good things that when turned into ultimate things become abusive slave masters. Like I said before, they will overpromise and underdeliver every time because they promise something that only Jesus Christ can give. To the Christian and the non-Christian, the invitation is the same. Summarize it well uh, with Matthew Henry in his commentary on Isaiah 55, I just want to read this, this quote to you because I thought it summarized it well. Come and buy. Make it your own by application of the grace of the gospel to yourselves. Come and eat. Make it still more your own and enjoy it. The world comes short of our expectations. We promise ourselves at least water in it, and we're disappointed. But Christ outdoes our expectations. We come to him and we find wine and milk. The gifts offered to us are such as no price can be set upon. The things offered are already paid for, for Christ purchased them at the full price of his own blood. I'll leave us with this last verse from one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 127, verses one through two. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. These are true words. Where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your energy, your labor? Where are you spending your money? Are you trying to find rest only to to be frustrated by the continuous mountains of work and necessities piling up in front of you, eating the bread of anxious toil, as it says in Psalm 127? Are you trying to find security for your little empire, for your little kingdom, staying awake in vain, 
perpetually in motion but never arriving at the destination you thought you would, recognizing that control is an illusion in many things in life. But the Lord is sovereign over it all. Listen to the Lord's invitation restated later in, in the New Testament by Jesus himself. Matthew 11, which we studied months ago. It's a beautiful little section. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, and then I'll close. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord's invitation is clear. Come and be satisfied. Listen and eat what is good, the richest of food. Live and receive him. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.